The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on Crimes Against Women. I'm Maria McMullen. The Human Trafficking Training Center is an anti-trafficking training initiative that provides training for law enforcement, probation, parole, and natural resource officers, nurses, and hospital administration, victim advocates, and civilians. It was founded by Dan Nash and Allison Phillips to provide solutions that teach law enforcement how to do investigations that ensure arrests and prosecutions of traffickers, how to interview a possible victim or offender, and how to set up a proactive operation or prepare related reports. The center's co-founder, Dan Nash, joins us to provide an overview of its work and the effectiveness of that work during major national events, especially those like the Super Bowl and World Series. Dan Nash is a retired Missouri State Trooper where he spent 27 years investigating human trafficking, narcotics and vice, homicide, and other violent crimes. He was the sergeant of the Human Trafficking Unit at the State Patrol and the enforcement supervisor of the Missouri Attorney General's Office Anti-Human Trafficking Task Force. He has taught thousands of individuals in law enforcement and in various industries including casino and gaming, firefighting, Victim Advocacy, Healthcare, and Trucking. Dan has also been extremely active in both teaching and working alongside nationwide nonprofits, such as Truckers Against Trafficking. Dan created the Special Victims Methodology for Investigating Human Trafficking Cases, which is being used by many law enforcement agencies. He's spoken at many conferences on human trafficking and has been passionate about improving the anti-trafficking program within law enforcement and communities since 2012. Dan Nash, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. So you are one of the major founders of the Human Trafficking Training Center. What motivated you to establish the center? So in my law enforcement career, I spent um, a long time working human trafficking. And I realized in my own case and with the case with officers all across the country is we have a real lack of, of training when it comes to human trafficking. So my partner and I decided that we needed to do something about that. And hence, we created the Human Trafficking Training Center. And now we're fortunate enough to travel all across the United States teaching law enforcement officers about human trafficking. And we're even going to Europe in May to do some teaching over there. So we're very, very fortunate. And that's really exciting. So I understand there are some unique elements to this training center. What makes it stand apart from other uh, human trafficking awareness or training? Well, um, exactly what you just said, human trafficking awareness. This is not a human trafficking awareness class. And unfortunately, a lot of what law enforcement gets is just that, a human trafficking 101 or human trafficking awareness. And that's not what law enforcement needs. 
What law enforcement needs is they need to have skills. They need to develop, develop skills that they can then turn and use into the field, use in their everyday you know, course of duties, um, whether they're going to a domestic violence call or an attempted overdose or an attempted suicide or whatever it is. And then they can recognize you know, indicators of trafficking and understand what to do. The way I like to relate to it is it's like teaching law enforcement about how bad drunk driving is without teaching them how to actually interact with a and, and identify if someone is a drunk driver or how to do a field sobriety test or how to do a breath test. It doesn't do any good to teach the police how bad drunk driving is if you don't teach them what to do to stop drunk driving. That is such an interesting point. And Jan Langbein, who's the CEO of Genesis Women's Shelter and the co-founder of the Conference on Crimes Against Women, which actually produces this podcast, uh, founded the Conference on Crimes Against Women for exactly that reason related to domestic violence, because she would continually go to educational programs that discuss how serious and severe and critical the nature of domestic violence is, but without any solutions or training to actually respond or prevent it. So uh, your point is well taken. What are then some of the gaps in training for police officers who come into common contact with human trafficking victims? I think the biggest gap is that because police officers are not trained, if, if you look at the research across the country, about 17% of law enforcement is actually trained in human trafficking. That doesn't mean that that's good training. It just means that they have any training, right? And over two thirds of law enforcement officers will tell you, at least in this particular survey, that they get a lot of their knowledge about human trafficking from social media or from TV or movies, which as I don't need to tell you, is probably not a good place to be <laughs> no. getting your knowledge from. Um, so, so what we see in, in the first paradigm shift that we try to make is that most law enforcement officers are under the assumption that many of these possible victims that they meet, whether they're men or women, um, usually it's, it's more women than men, clearly, but it's um, that they are prostitutes or they are junkies or they are hookers or they are, you know, hoes or whatever terminology that you want to use for them. And they're out there because of bad decisions or because that's what they want to do. And if you look at the research across the board, it's very, very consistent that that is not the case. That um, anywhere from 86 to 97%, and, and a lot of people kind of fall somewhere in the middle around 90% of these persons are, uh, you know, have some kind of third party control, or they're under force, fraud, or coercion, or there's something going on in their life that they don't want to do this. They don't want to be out here doing this, um, but they just don't have any other options. And, and another analogy that I like to use is just really a common sense analogy. You don't have to be a researcher. You don't have to be a PhD or anything to know this. What woman in her right mind is sitting around when she's 12, 13, 14 years old and is thinking to herself, you know, if I could just grow up and be a prostitute, to have sex with 10 or 15 strange men a day, to get beat up to um, have all kinds of medical problems and, and, and diseases and everything else that comes, to maybe get addicted to drugs and alcohol, to be depressed, to maybe be suicidal. If I could just get to that point, I'd really have life licked. So common sense wise, we ought to be able to determine 
these girls don't really want to be in this situation. So we really got to make that paradigm shift in the police officers and get them to look at prostitution really as an indicator of trafficking, because that's really what it is. And to look at these people as someone to help, not someone to arrest, not someone to deal with in a traditional law enforcement perspective, but to literally help. And what we find is not only do we stop a lot of this behavior, do we provide them services and options, but when we handle it that way, they are generally way more cooperative in the long run. And we end up making more cases on the actual traffickers down the road than we ever would in a traditional law enforcement approach. So it's really creating that paradigm shift. Yeah, I mean, your your points are, again, well taken. There is no child who aspires to be um, any of the things that you mentioned, and certainly not an individual who's trafficked or a human slave or anything of the sort. And so somehow the circumstances of life uh, twist in a direction that cause people to become victims and caught up into um, things that are very undesirable for them and and many others. So specifically then, what are some of the responses that um the Human Trafficking Training Center, uh, just give me a few examples of, of how you instruct law enforcement officers to respond to these situations. So um, I'll give you an example. We had we did a training recently at the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, and, and, and we see this almost every time we do a training, that within a week, two weeks, whatever it is, we'll get a call from some officer that says, hey, this is what I just did, and I learned you know this in the class, and this is what happened. So this officer calls seven days after the training, and he had responded to a disturbance call between a man and a woman at a local convenience store. And while he's there, you know, he thinks it's probably just, you know, a domestic violence type situation, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. But he's got his new skill set that he learned, and he's looking and he's paying attention, and he's seeing indicators that are more than just the surface, right? Just mm-hmm. the surface of they're in a verbal altercation. There's no assault that's taken place, but what what is the underlying surface of what's going on? And then he starts seeing these other indicators and he, and he goes through the process of, of, of talking to this um, possible victim in a certain way. And he realized that she could possibly be a trafficking victim. So he pulls her aside. He uses his newfound interview skills. He uses his newfound um, knowledge and he gets this girl to say, yes, um, the reason we're fighting is this is my boyfriend, but he wants me to go out and basically turn tricks so he can make money off of me. And I don't want to do it. And we fight about this and I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in this life. I don't want to do any of this. And he's got me you know, using drugs and he's doing all these other things and he's forcing me to do this and I don't want to. And so he, that officer knew what to do and he got her out of there and he he um, got her to a, a human trafficking shelter. He got her a human trafficking advocate, which is what he was taught in our training. And, and she eventually gets out of that environment. She gets into short-term shelter, and then she eventually gets into a rehab, and then she eventually gets into some more longer-term shelter. And, and, and now she's out of that, and she is working you know, on a different path and has a different you know, opportunity now, whereas if that officer did not have that training, he wouldn't have recognized those indicators. He wouldn't have seen that. He would have just treated that as just a normal argument between this boyfriend and this girlfriend. And he would have went on down the road and she would still be stuck in that situation. That's a perfect example of, of what I was hoping you would provide. So it, get, it makes me have two additional questions. What happened to him? 
uh, in the course of this situation? And also, how do you track outcomes from cases uh, that may may result from officers receiving training at the center? So um, as far as tracking, we, we get a lot of calls from officers from all over the country. Um, and Allison and I are always willing to answer our phone and, and to help. So we get a lot of calls from officers that, you know, went through a training and now it's a week, it's two weeks later. And this is maybe their first experience with something like this. So they'll call us on the phone and say, hey, I mean, I've literally got, I couldn't even count how many phone calls from officers on the side of the road somewhere in Idaho or South Dakota or wherever and say, hey, this is what I got and this is what I think. What do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And we can kind of, you know, guide and counsel them a little bit. So this is, this is, this is while they're in the situation, they're calling you too. Correct. Yes. We have that happen quite a bit. Um, Or they'll call us right after like the next day, like we did a training in St. Louis and we literally had the officer call us the next day and he responded to a school, to a multiple time runaway girl who was 14 years old. And he's talking to the school counselor and the school counselor is giving him all this information. And he literally tells the school counselor, I just learned about this stuff yesterday. I was just in this training yesterday. And and they started looking into it and come to find out mom is trafficking her 14 year old daughter to a local gang member who's putting her out on the street and then paying the mom so much to allow him to traffic her daughter so that the mom can buy drugs. And they were able to get that 14-year-old girl out of that situation and arrested mom and arrested the gang member. And now that 14-year-old girl is in a much safer place and and is getting counseling and all the services that she needs. And that literally happened the very next day after the training. So he calls us the day after, which would have been two days later. And he was all excited. And he was like, this is what we did. And, and, you know, because the police officers they do this because they care and they want to help people. And when they can see these, these new skills that they can actually help people and get them out of these horrible situations, they're excited about it. They want to talk about it. They want to tell people. So they'll, they'll call us and and tell us about what happened. And, and we encourage that. And that way we can share it with, you know, other trainings and, and, and stuff like that. And I think that's important to do. It speaks volumes to the effectiveness of the training that you offer. If then, in the very next day, an, an officer encounters a situation that they can apply the training methodology to, and they're able to do so so effectively, as you as you indicated. I think that is really remarkable. Um, so just going back to that first story you were saying about uh, the disturbance between a man and a woman, and he got her out of a trafficking situation, what happened to the boyfriend? Um, they opened up a criminal investigation on the boyfriend for trafficking. And um, I don't remember if, if that had, that had been completed or not, or, or if he was arrested, but I suspect that he probably got arrested. I don't, I don't know that I know that, you know, for a fact, Mm -hmm. but I know that they opened up an investigation and started looking at him for, for trafficking his girlfriend. That's good. (laughs) That's another good outcome. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Cause we want, not only do we want to help as many of these victims as possible and, and, and stop what's happening, but we also want to arrest and put the people that are doing this to people out of commission so they don't do it to other people. Because, you know, it's pretty common for them to have multiple victims at, at the same time. And, 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 and we, want to, we want to stop that. For sure. Um, that you also promote a special victims methodology in your training. Tell us about that. 
So the special victims methodology was was something that I had kind of a passion about. And, you know, I, I spent 10 years working or over 10 years, actually, almost 13 years working um, violent crime before I started working human trafficking full time. And I never could understand how I could get people that had killed people to tell me what they had done to confess their their crimes and to explain it all to me. But I could not get these victims of trafficking to, to admit that they were victims of trafficking. And it wasn't just me. If you look at, at across the United States, the disclosure rate of trafficking victims is about 7% across America. Mm -hmm. So really 93% of these victims do not identify as a victim and do not disclose. So I thought there's got to be a better way for law enforcement to do this. We obviously are terrible at this. What can we do to fix this, to get better? And we tried and tried and tried so many different things. And honestly, they were all massive failures. It was failure after failure after failure. And then one day, something kind of by accident happened. And it worked with this with this particular person. And, and, and she told us everything that was going on and, and, and what was happening to her. And, and, and we weren't really sure if that was just like a one-off or if we could repeat that. So we started trying to repeat that and use that same process. And what we discovered over time, um, and what we have since discovered even more as we travel around the country teaching this, that we, with this new special victims methodology, we are able to increase that 7% up to about 40 to 50%. So it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. It's not the end all be all. But if we can get half of the victims to talk to us versus 7% of the victims, that's kind of a game changer, because now that's, that many more traffickers we can arrest and put in jail. And it's that many more, and this is probably the most important thing, it's that many more victims that we are able to help. Because once they once they talk to us, then we can say, hey, we really want to get you into you know, some services. Can we get you a safe place to go, a safe place to be? Do you need rehab? Do you need medical? Do you need counseling? We can provide all these services. And, and now we get like 75% of these victims that we encounter to accept services. And like I said, around 40 to 50 to, to disclose to us. The only negative side of, of the special victims methodology, it's a little slower paced than a traditional law enforcement interview where you just contact somebody, you interview them for 10 minutes, they either tell you something or they don't, and you, and you're, you, you either move on or you don't. It doesn't quite work that way. It's a little bit slower process, but it is much more effective. Yeah, considering most victims of crimes against women uh, are largely underreported, right? So you may get 7% or 50% to, uh, to report and offer information, but yet there is probably still a large percentage of people out there who aren't talking or aren't even reporting their experiences. Correct. And, and I think another thing that law enforcement doesn't understand until they go through the training and and I don't think the general public understands is a trafficking victim is far different than any other kind of victim. You cannot just throw them in like some basket with um, a domestic violence victim or a sex assault victim or a sex abuse victim. They are not like that. They're and, and the way, you know, the PTSD that they have and the trauma bonding that they have and everything else that they go through, they are not like that. 
So the, the approaches that we use with a sex assault victim or a sex abuse victim or a domestic violence victim completely do not work with the trafficking victim. And I think that frustrates law enforcement, that frustrates probably advocates, that frustrates probably everybody um, is because is it just does not work. And that's why we tried so hard to try to come up with a better way, because trafficking victims are a completely unique type of person and have been through a completely unique type of trauma. And if you do a traditional law enforcement approach, it does not work with them. It just does not. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, we wanted to kind of talk for a minute about the idea that sex trafficking activity may or may not increase during major sporting events like the Super Bowl and, and other major events. Um, how would you respond to that? I would probably respond by saying that we're not really sure. Um, I think the research is, is somewhat mixed. If you look at the Super Bowl, for example, um, and you look at escort ads like, you know, the previous years before a Super Bowl comes to whatever major American city that it's going to. And then you look at escort ads based upon that particular time at the Super Bowl. Some years it's significantly more and other years it's not. Other years, it's about the same. So I, I don't know that you can definitely say that, you know, that it, that, it, that it increases every time, that it increases this amount. I, I think the research is, is really just unclear. And then the other thing that people generally point to is, well, yeah, but look at how many arrests were made at the Super Bowl. And that's 100% true. But you also have to look at the amount of work that was put into place. For example, in Los Angeles at the last Super Bowl, there is literally like a thousand police officers there doing nothing but, but working human trafficking. Nothing. Wow. And they come from all over the country. And there's like 500 victim advocates there that are, they come from all over the country. And they do this, you know, week long operation, you know, that starts before the Super Bowl and, and goes through the Super Bowl. So my question is, if we took a thousand police officers and 500 victim advocates and we put them in Dallas for a week or Atlanta for a week or Philadelphia for a week or Detroit for a week or Chicago for a week, would we not arrest a ton of people? Yeah, of course I mean, we would. yeah, totally. They will find something. They're going to find all these traffickers that are there all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And they're going to find all these victims that are there all the time anyway. So I think if we just look at the numbers, you know, because statistics can mean a lot of different things depending upon how you look at them. And I don't think people realize that we're dumping that amount of assets into like the Super Bowl. I, I, mean, ha I, I had no know. idea. I had no idea. Because you're saying there's a thousand officers and 500 victim advocates dedicated just to the human trafficking uh, investigation or, you know, yeah, activity. Yeah. And, and, and those, and, and I'm not, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. I'm not saying that it's exactly a thousand officers, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. when, when you look at LA, for example, and you look at, you know, the LA County Sheriff's Department has got their task force and then LAPD has got, you know, their units, you know, you're talking on any given normal day or normal weekend, you're talking maybe, maybe 20 detectives that are working in the LA County region on human trafficking full time. And now all of a sudden, you know, you dump all these amount of resources in, I mean, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing it. 
I'm just saying we should look at it as as what it is. I mean, there were officers that came from all over the state of California. I know officers that went from Florida and the East Coast that went to that went to the Super Bowl. I know victim advocates that went from Chicago and other places all around the country that were going to the Super Bowl. So my question is, if we just go by the number of arrests, I don't think that that really means a lot when we're dumping that amount of resources into that event, because we could probably dump that amount of resources into, like I said, any American city, you know, at, at any point and, and say, wow, look at this, this, you know, what does this mean? And, and then we could be confused by what it really means. So if we don't look at the arrest, what, it, what data should we look at to see if it was effective or meaningful? Well, I think the other amount of data that people look at is basically just the escort ads. So are there more escort ads during the Super Bowl than there was like during February? So if you take L.A. and we're looking at February 2022, number of escort ads, and then we take February 2021, February 2020, February 2019, is there a difference? Is there is it is there, you know, a 20 percent increase in number of ads um, and then also, does it fall back down after the Super Bowl leaves, right? So mm-hmm. next year in February of 2023, we would look at it and go, wow, um, you know, these escort ads are down 30% this year as from last year, which put us more puts us more in line with, you know, what we saw before the Super Bowl. Then we look at that and go, well, maybe that maybe for LA that that did that did take place. We did have this influx of people bringing bringing people in. I'm not saying that I don't believe that. I think there probably is some of that. I'm just saying I don't know if we know how much it is because in some Super Bowls, it doesn't seem to really be the case at all. That's really interesting um, and and kind of a little hard to get your, your arms around because it doesn't sound like, it sounds like there's a form of a strategy to uh, approach this, but it doesn't sound like there's a really great strategy. It sounds like something else you may need to train people on. At the Human Trafficking Training Center. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And, 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 and honestly, I think we probably just need to do more research and figure out a way, you know, to maybe hone it in a little bit better. And, and I've seen different, you know, advocacy groups, you know, say exactly what I'm saying is we're not really sure. Um, we have always thought, and I think there is probably some truth to this, that at these big events where you have a lot of people show up, you're probably going to have a little bit more of a demand. Um but can we say that every year? And the answer is we, I don't know that we can because the, the evidence is not really consistent. Is there any evidence to suggest that uh, large national events that are not sporting events would, would have similar activity? Again, I think the, I think the, the research is probably not 100% consistent. From a law enforcement perspective, we have always went under the assumption that if you have some big giant event, whether it's a, a giant convention like the, I don't know, the Democrat or Republican National Convention or WrestleMania or Daytona 500 or really any event that's bringing a lot of people together, mm-hmm. right, that you're going to have um, when you're having that many more people pushed into this situation that you're going to have the demand usually rise. I mean, you would think that would be the case. So I, I think it probably, my gut feeling is it probably would rise a little bit, but does it really rise that much? And does it really justify the amount of resources that we dedicate to it? 
And the answer to that is, I just don't know. Um, I would like to do, I would like to do a thing where we take, we, we do the Super Bowl and maybe the Super Bowl is in LA, like, you know, like it was this last year. But then we also do an operation with the same amount of resources in like Chicago or Atlanta or some other major city in some other part of the country and see if there's a difference. I'd be really curious to see if there's a difference. I would be really curious about that too. So somewhere along the way I read or or heard that traffickers are a little more organized in their approaches to these events and they actually kind of gauge what the market's going to be and ship in uh, women to meet the demand. Is that true? I think traffickers, I think sometimes we give traffickers a little bit more credit than what they truly deserve. (laughs) I I think traffickers are a little less organized than what we really think they are. They're more loosely organized um, than I think a lot of us would like to believe. I think it's easier for us to believe that, you know, it's this organized crime group. And, and there is there is definitely that that is definitely a part, but the, that it's like this really big organized crime group. And and I think a lot of times that's just not what it what it really turns out to be. It might be four or five guys that are, you know, hanging out together and want to, you know, and want to, you know, make money. So this is what they've decided to do. They're going to be a trafficker and this is what they do. And they, and they move these girls around. Traffickers are very nomadic anyway. So they move from city to city, they move from place to place and that, and they do that for a variety of different reasons for, to avoid law enforcement, to maybe they're in spats with other traffickers that are, you know, threatening them, shooting at them, whatever. So they're very nomadic anyway. So Again, that's another question where I think they do that, but do they do that just because it's a big sporting event? Maybe some of them do, but maybe some of them don't. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. Um, Would it be more effective to have year-round training on human trafficking and the possibility of there being an influx of trafficking activity during an event versus this reaction of sending this much law enforcement to a city that may or may not experience uh, high trafficking during an event. So I, I'm a fan of doing these proactive operations like the Super Bowl, right? Where you go in and you're going after, whether you're going after the demand reduction side, which is going after the Johns, or you're trying to find the traffickers, or you're trying to rescue the victims. I, I'm, I'm a fan of those. And we teach a whole class on just how to do those properly. So you're not re-victimizing the victims and, and how you're doing this properly. But I don't think, I mean, that's just one part. And I think, I think we get caught up and by we, I mean, society, law enforcement gets caught up in it. I think the community gets part of caught up in it because they're sexy. And, and it's like, we did this big operation and we did this and we did that and, and whatever. And then we all go back home to where we came from. And then everything goes back to normal in LA or Atlanta or Houston or wherever the Super Bowl is. Right. Mm. And we all go right back to normal and we all pat ourselves on the back and we think, okay, we did such a great job. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. We, we should, it, it is, it is, it's good work. But let me ask you this. Would we not be more effective if, for example, we trained every Los Angeles police officer in human trafficking? That's like, I don't even know how many officers that is. Thousands, right? 5,000, 8,000, mm-hmm. whatever they have, patrol officers. Because what we have seen 
is there's only so few detectives, right? Only 4% of law enforcement agencies in America have full-time human trafficking detectives, 4%. So it's not very many. And we run around and we do these operations, which we should do because they, they help rescue victims and they help arrest traffickers and they help provide a deterrent. But overall, if we really want to have a big impact, if we train all the patrol officers, the actual uniform people that are in law enforcement, they make up like 90, over 90% of the law enforcement people in America. Of the 800,000 cops that we have in America, patrol makes up over 90% of those. If all the patrol officers are trained, because they're out there 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, going to domestic violence calls, suicides, attempts, overdoses, um, all the other stuff that they're seeing, making traffic stops, going to all these other calls, I personally think we will rescue and identify way, way more victims if we just did that than we would doing all these big fancy operations that we do across the country. That does sound like a much more effective approach. Um, is that possible? Or, I mean, are you planning to have an initiative that would train more officers in that manner? So we are trying to, to, to do that. Um, our hope is, is to train 4,000 police officers just this year in 2022. Um, and what we see, it, it, based upon the training that we've done historically, is that for every around every 100 officers that gets training, they rescue or identify between two and three victims in the next 12 months. And that doesn't stop after the end of that 12 months. It continues to go for the life of that officer, we believe. And, and as we continue to keep stats, we'll be able to, to, you know, to see if that's actually true. But I don't know why it wouldn't be true, because once you teach them the skills, they're going to continue to use them year after year after year after year. But that's about what we see. So if we so if we train 4,000 police officers this year, and for every 100 police officers, they identify three victims, that's a lot of victims. It is. You know, we're talking, what, 120, if my math is right? Is that right? 120 victims out of that 4,000 we'll train this year? Mm -hmm. That was 120 victims that we would have never found without that. And... And I'm trying to think if there's ever been a human trafficking operation at any big giant sporting event where we've ever identified 120 victims. And I don't know that there has been. So to me, it seems like it would be more efficient to continue to do the operations because they do serve a purpose and, and there's something good that we get from them. But more importantly, to train our everyday patrol officers and if we did that across America, oh my goodness, we would have so, we would be able to identify so many more victims and so many more traffickers. You talk about moving the needle, that's how you move the needle. Let's talk about advocacy for, uh, for a minute. Um, the notion of survivor leadership and victim advocates is, seems to be assuming a larger part of trauma-informed landscape can you explain what a survivor leader is and the importance of a survivor's role in these law enforcement investigations? So having a survivor leader help you, um, we, we use survivor leaders in our training and it's really, really important. And, and the reason that it's really, really important is, so I, I'm not the one that came up with this, but I've heard other people use it and I'm a big believer in it, is whenever I see people, whether I'm on LinkedIn or 
or I'm at an event speaking and I see someone who portrays themselves and I'm sure you've seen this too. You see these people that say I'm a subject matter expert or I'm an expert at this or I'm an expert at that. I kind of just chuckle to myself. Um, there are only two experts in human trafficking. There is the trafficker and there is the survivor. Right. The rest of us are by no means experts. Some of us may have more experience in the field than others. Some of us have made more knowledge in the field than others, but there are really only two experts. So I think it's common knowledge or maybe common sense to try to, to try to incorporate that expert lived experience into training. And I'll give you an example. So we just, we just had a special victims methodology training a couple of weeks ago, and we had three survivor leaders as part of that training. And, um, you know, to see the officers listen to them and explain what certain things mean and why they may have acted a certain way or why, you know, a victim may act a certain way or why a trafficker may do certain things. It's really powerful. And, and you can see, I mean, there's never usually, you, you can hear a pin drop when those survivors are speaking to the officers and the officers are just soaking it up. Um, I mean, they can listen to someone like me who's, you know, spent 15 years doing anti-human trafficking work, but I'm not a survivor mm -hmm. and I was never a trafficker. Those are the real experts, right? And it's really important to, I think, include them because they're going to be able to tell us things and explain things in a way that we never could. And I just think it's that you should include them if you're going to really give a comprehensive type of training and education to police officers. Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to agree at the conference and at Genesis Women's Shelter that uh, that type of approach is survivors are the experts, right, as you said. They are. Um, and that also uh, makes me wonder about multidisciplinary approaches to human trafficking investigations. Is that the type of approach that law enforcement uses, one that is multidisciplinary? That's, that's what we teach. But unfortunately, due to the lack of training in, in many of the places that we go, um, that's not what be, is being done because law enforcement doesn't know, right? So, for example, we were just at this one state and, 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 and to their credit, they were like, hey, we're not really doing anything on the human trafficking front, but we want to get involved in the human trafficking front. And, you know, they wanted us to come provide like three trainings over the course of like 10 months. And I said, okay, that'd be great. We'll be happy to do that. We can start here. We can do this. And I said, but we also invite local victim advocates and these other players you know, as part of your multidiscipline team. So I asked them, I said, so who are your victim advocates in your state? And they literally said, I don't have any idea. Mm. And, and we see that. I mean, I'd like to say that's uncommon, but that's probably more common than not. So, so we joke about it in that we want to put the police and the victim advocates and these other parts of our team, right? These multidiscipline team in the same room with the same training so that the advocates know what the law enforcement are getting and we're incorporating the advocates in our training so they know what's expected of them. Um, and then I tell all the police, you need to find these advocates that are in the room right now and you need to become BFFs with them. You need to take them to lunch. <laughs> you need to hang out with them. They're your new best friends because they're going to do stuff that you can't do. You're going to be able to do stuff that they can't do, but you guys need to be part of a team. You need to be partnered up. And all of us working in our silos We've been doing that for 100 years, and it has not worked in human trafficking. So how about we just get out of our silos, and we all become part of a team, and we all start working together. 
And when we do that, you can see it starts working and they start working as a team and, and, and it starts working right away. Yeah, go team. Um, so to that point, then, how can law enforcement agencies and others learn about upcoming trainings at the center? So you can just go to our website, which is the human trafficking training center.com. Um, we have, we're out there on social media. We're out on LinkedIn. You know, we're on Facebook, even though I hate Facebook, we're still on it. <laughs> um, so you can, you can do that. And we have, we try to update our trainings are pretty fluid. We just added several, but we do try to put out there where we're going to be. Um, like we just getting ready to add some, some trainings where we're going to Eastern Europe to train for Interpol. But um, so we'll have that on there. You can email us. You can sign up for trainings. All of our trainings are no cost to the advocates and to the law enforcement agencies. Um, and, and, and we do that on purpose because we want to get as many as possible. And with, you know, everything that's going on with the budgets for law enforcement nowadays and rural law enforcement has never had any money. We don't want money to be an issue. So we have other funding sources that we are constantly striving for to to make it free for law enforcement to go. Wow, that's outstanding. I had no idea that you were uh, funded outside of, you know, the cost of the training. So there is absolutely no reason for people not to sign up for this training or not to have the training if it is no cost. Yeah, it's no cost. And you get your, you know, law enforcement has to get their hours, you know, per year. So you get your post hours. It's free. There's really no reason not to to go. And, and, and that's why, you know, I think it's it's pretty popular when we do this particular, you know, kind of process you know, we'll average between 100 and 200 officers usually added training. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good. It is good. It's very good. Dan, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a really great time meeting you, and, and it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Visit conferencecaw.org. For details about the Conference on Crimes Against Women and other upcoming training opportunities, and follow us on social media at National CCAW. You can also register now for the 2022 Conference on Crimes Against Women on May 23rd through the 26th in downtown Dallas. We look forward to seeing you there.